Uh, we are excited uh, to be continuing our sermon series called The Art of Neighboring. Um, for those of you who don't know, we've uh, just started a sermon series called The Art of Neighboring. It's based on a book um, by two pastors, uh, I think they're up from the Minnesota area, called Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon. They wrote this book called The Art of Neighboring. They were leading churches in their area, and, and they asked kind of local civic leaders, um, what do you need from the church? You know, they said, like, ultimately, the, the, the church should make uh, the community better. And, and so they asked these civic leaders, not related to the church at all, they just asked the civic leaders, what do you need from us? And the civic leaders sat down, they told them, well, we, we need you to make your neighborhoods better. And they said, well, how do we do that? And they said, well, get to know your neighbors. And these pastors looked around at themselves and they said, did a civic leader just tell us to love our neighbor? Um, right? This is like ultimately what they said. So they started this series, they wrote this book, and it's become now a movement of neighboring. And so we are continuing this called The Art of Neighboring. And, and um, if you are new with us this morning or if you haven't been a part of this series, um, the thing we learned about uh, a couple of weeks ago that uh, my wife Melissa um, brought to our attention is what's called a block map. And so we have some actually in the back. If you don't have this, I encourage you to use this. They're uh, sheets of paper in the back, but it looks like this, right? If you're online with us this morning, you can take a screenshot or however you can engage with it. Imagine that you live in the center of this block map, right? It says you are here. Imagine you live at the center of this block block map in your neighborhood, imagine these eight squares around the center square are the eight closest neighbors who live closest to you. All right, so just imagine right now, if you can just imagine those eight closest neighbors. Um, and, and I want to encourage you to, to um, either remember or learn, maybe this can be your goal, of learning three things about them. The first is their name, right? Do you know the names of the eight closest neighbors you. And the second thing is this, do you, do you know something about them? Not something you've observed from your driveway, right? Not they don't mow their lawn when I think they should, right? That doesn't count. Um, but something you learn from conversation with them, you know, where they work, um, where they're originally from, uh, you know, who, who, who are their extended family, something about them that you've learned in conversation is the second thing. And the third thing are their hopes, their dreams, their fears, their goals. Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon discovered that less than 1% of Christians can name the hopes, dreams, fears, or goals of the eight closest neighbors who live nearest them. The people to whom Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, don't know our literal neighbors and find it difficult to actually love them the way God encouraged us to love them. And so what we're going to be encouraged to do throughout this series and hopefully throughout the rest of our life is to love our neighbors, especially those people whom God has placed near us, nearest to us, has entrusted these people, these eight neighbors closest to us, so that we can learn this information about them, not just to learn it, to learn it, but to learn it so that we might love them better, right? It's really difficult to love somebody, you know, whose name you can't remember. You ever been in that awkward situation as a pastor? I'm sorry to say I find myself in the situation a lot where somebody greets you and they say, hey, and, and, and you're like, hi, but you don't know their name. And so you know that typically in you know, like human interaction, a name would follow after the words hi, but since you don't know it, you have to like invent a nickname for them. You ever done? Nobody's ever. You've done this before, right? You know, and so they're like, hi, and you go, hey. 
buddy, <laughs> you know, I'm always calling you buddy, you know, like, like we go way, no, like that, that, it's difficult to love somebody whose name you can't remember. So what if we started with their names so that we can love them and learn something about them over a conversation that we've had out in our driveway, out in the yard? What if we, we engaged so much in life with them that we learned about their hopes and their dreams, their beliefs about God? What if we learned about these things so that we might love them? better so that we might love them better i know um, that a global pandemic has really put a damper on this neighboring movement right uh, this put a damper on this neighboring movement but here's what i hope that we would know is that we can be socially distant without being socially isolated right if this year has taught us anything it's the difference between being distant and isolated right Right, you know, when, when the pandemic first hit back in, back in March, you know, um, you know, my family, we, you know, had young children, uh, we had aging parents, and, and so, we, you know, we went into lockdown, and, and we learned the importance in that moment of being distant from others while also being connected and not isolated, right? And so during this time, I think we can think creatively about how to neighbor really well, even when our neighbors and we ourselves might have certain fears and limitations when it comes to neighboring. We can be distant, friends, without being isolated. And, and I think what our neighbors are really dying for, what our neighbors are really hoping is that they can find some connection with the people nearest to them, right? They can find some connection with those who are right next door, you know, my family and I, we moved here two years ago. And, and what I've said, uh, the thing that I love about North Dallas is the fact that really not many people are from this area, right? What we've seen is this great migration of people from all over, right? Coming here, finding home here. And the great thing about that is, is the kind of hospitality that provides. You know, whenever we moved into our home, we met neighbors on either side of us. And we realized the neighbors to our south they were from South Texas. Uh, the neighbors to our north were from New Jersey, right? And so nobody was from this area. And so we got to create this kind of new community in this area. I imagine within that eight closest neighbors to you, there's at least one family who's not from around here. And is just hoping that somebody will reach out to them. Somebody will, 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 will be connected with them. Somebody will love them. As we think about this project of neighboring, maybe you've heard you know, me say about like the eight closest neighbors to you and you think about learning all this information about them and maybe the first thing that pops in your head is, I don't have time to do that. Right, I, I, I don't have time. You know, we just started school. You know, our kids are going back and forth. We're trying to get work done in the meantime. You know, we've got projects. We've got things that are going on. We don't have time. That's truth be told. We don't have time to love our neighbors. And if you say that, I think you're, you're right. The way we are currently living our life, we don't have time. But maybe that's not the way we were supposed to live. I was, uh, I I was with a group of dads uh, a while back, and, and we were talking about, you know, just being a dad and, and, you know, what it was like, and sometimes, you know, getting frustrated with our children. And, uh, and, you know, we were just kind of lamenting together and, and one friend actually shared a story of his and uh, his wife was gone. He had three daughters and, and he was trying to get them ready to get them out of the house, you know, which, which, is, which is a task um, with two parents, let alone one. And so he, he was working and he had got them all like in you know, front of the door and, and he looked at the youngest daughter. She didn't have any shoes on, you know, he's like, oh my gosh, okay, you know, go back and get some shoes on. So she just went upstairs and, and once she went upstairs, you know, they waited for a while and then they realized that she wasn't coming back down. 
down. So he went back up to see what had happened. And she was started looking for her shoes, but then as children do, got sidetracked, right? And so it's like, oh, you know, it's getting frustrated. We're running late. We got to go. And so, you know, get shoes on her. We get down the stairs, get, um, get out the door. And, and he's getting the kids in the car. He gets in the driver's seat. And he looks back and he realizes that he's missing the youngest child and, and they're running late. And, and the door is still open. And he looks out the door uh, at his daughter standing out in the yard. And he said, get in the car, darn it, but he didn't say darn it. And he said, my daughter looked at me and she said, I'm not a darn it. But she didn't say darn it. And you know, his heart just ached. You know, those moments in parenting when you realize that you just did it wrong and and he's, oh gosh, of course, no. And and he he gets out of the car and, and he went and he knelt down and apologized to his daughter and said, oh, I'm sorry, you know, we're, I was rushed and, you know, I love you. And, and, you know, helped her into the car, helped her buckle her seatbelt and got in and went on his way. But, you know, that's when we know something about our lives is that we can't love in a hurry. We can't love in a hurry. So slow down, right? When we're rushed, when we're pressed for time, when we're trying to accomplish something in X amount of time and that time seems like it's slipping away, we can't be loving in that moment. And so the point is not just to accept that. The point is not to say, you know, I'm going to be grouchy for the next so many hours while I'm trying to accomplish this thing, so just don't bother me. No, that's not the point. The point is to slow down. The point is to live in such a way so that we can be loving. And I think this is true regardless of what we believe. If you're here this morning, if you're watching online, and, and you may say, you know, like, I don't know what I believe about Jesus. I, 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 I don't know what this means for me. I think this can still be true for us today. The truth is we can't love in a hurry, so slow down. Jay Pathak and Dave Renyon in their book, Art of Neighboring, say there are three lies that we tell ourselves about time. There are three lies that we tell ourselves about time. The first is this, that things will settle down someday. Things will settle down someday. Has anybody ever said this to themselves? Come on, truth time, safe space. Here we go. All right, things will settle down someday. Some of us have said this before. Um, No, they won't. Right? They will not settle down. They will settle down, right? When you're dead. That's when, they, that's when things, you know, your schedule just immediately becomes free once that happens. But, um, but until then, things will not settle down unless we make a decision for things to settle down. Things will not just magically settle down someday. The second lie is this. More will be enough. More will be enough. The truth is, no, it won't. When you get that promotion, you're still going to be working the same habit of work that you've created up to this point. Whenever, whenever you get into that neighborhood, now you're going to have to support that mortgage payment. Whenever you get into this thing or that place, whenever you get whatever more is for you, it will not be enough. The habit we've established up to this point will continue to be our habit moving forward unless we make a conscious decision otherwise. More will not be enough. The third lie is this. Everybody lives like this, right? Everybody is short with their children. Everybody is short with their spouse. Everybody is short with their family or their friends. Everybody lives at a breakneck speed. Everybody lives where they are constantly working. Even when they have time away, they are constantly working. Everybody lives like this. No, they don't. No, they don't. And you don't have to either. 
That's what we learned this morning in, in the Gospel of Mark. We, we learn about this practice of neighboring. We learn about this practice of, of time management from Jesus, right? He's a pretty important guy in our circle, so, so it's helpful to kind of learn from him. And, and so we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark this morning, chapter 5. If you have your Bible with you, if you use your Bible on your phone, however you engage with the Bible this morning, I encourage you to do it. Um, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verse 21 is where we're going to start. Uh, we read this, that when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side. A great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she might be, may be made well and live. So Jesus, he went with Jairus, him. He went with him. Notice what's happening here. Okay, Jesus, Scripture says, has crossed the sea. Why? He's in the Sea of Galilee. The Galilee is split down the middle between the Greek side on the east and the Jewish side on the west. Right? That means the, the bad side is on the east, the Hellenists, the, the kind of new age that's coming in, this new culture, these new ideas that are, that are pressing in our old ways. These are the bad people on the east and the old ways, the good ways, the chosen people on the west. Jesus had been on the east and was doing ministry, was healing people on the Greek side. Jesus gets in the boat and comes to the west side, the, the Jewish side. And as soon as he gets off the boat, this crowd of people presses in on him. And Jairus immediately asks for Jesus to heal his daughter. You ever gotten home from a long day of work? You know, and, and like maybe you had a commute. You know, maybe you had to travel on 75 during rush hour. Um, and, and, you know, and, and you were just like white knuckled the whole way. And, 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 and you got out of the car. And as soon as you got out of the car, you know, there was like a laundry list of things um, for you to do. Uh, or maybe like, like your kids were immediately asking for something. Right? Like how exhausting is that? Jesus had just traveled from the Greek side of the Sea of Galilee and arrived to the west side, his hometown, the place where things are familiar. He was looking for comfort. He was looking for home. And as soon as he got off the boat, this crowd presses in on him. And Jairus says, my daughter is about to die. How many times has Jesus gotten this request? Right? How many times has Jesus, this miracle worker who's become incredibly famous, anytime he enters a town, all of these people bring their sick to him so that he might heal them. How many times has he gotten this request? If you don't act now, this person will die. And Jesus receives this request. But for Jairus, he goes with him. Why? Because Jesus lived an interruptible life. Jesus lived an interruptible life. Jesus had margin in his life. What does that mean? When he looked at his calendar, it wasn't, you know, from, from noon to one, I'm here, and then from one to two, I'm here, and then from two to four, I'm here. And the, It was not that way. Jesus had margin in his life. Why? So that he could be interrupted. Why? So that he could share the gospel, the good news with those people that interrupted him. Now, Granted, he did not throw away his complete schedule. His goals were still his goals, but if he was interrupted with something that aligned with his goals, he was willing to do that. So Jesus travels from the Greek side of the Sea of Galilee to the Jewish side. He gets off the boat. The crowd presses in on him. Jairus says, come heal my daughter. And Jesus goes with him because he lived an interruptible life. He felt like this was in line with his gospel message, and so he goes. And on his way, 
on his way, he finds this. I, 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 love, we, I worked at a church in Oklahoma, and in Oklahoma, we had our own beatitude. A beatitude simply means blessing, and it's, Jesus shares the beatitudes in, in Matthew 5, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, um, and, and things like, you know, blessed are the hungry, for they will be filled, right? There are blessings to these people that are kind of unexpected that Jesus talks about, their beatitudes. We had our own beatitude, and it sounded like this. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be bent out of shape. Right? I love this because I think it's so true, right? Like if you're flexible, you won't break, right? If you can bend when things come your way, you won't just like completely flip out. But if we're so rigid, so tight, so stiff, whenever somebody comes in and tries to ask for our time, it'll snap. It'll break. And that was not true for Jesus. That while Jesus is on his way, we read this in Matthew 5, 27 through 29. A woman with a hemorrhage had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in a crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? So Jesus is encountered by Jairus. And he starts to make his way to Jairus' house so that he can heal his daughter. And Jesus, again, is very popular. So when Jesus walks, he has like this entourage that follows him, right? First of all, he has his disciples with him. Those students of his that he has selected, they're with him. They're kind of on the inner circle. But then like this crowd starts to follow Jesus, right? Jesus had fed 5,000 people and, you know, word had spread, you know? Like they started to follow Jesus. Like maybe we might get a free meal out of this or something, you know? Like let's see what happens. And so they start to follow Jesus, this crowd starts to follow Jesus and, and everybody starts kind of like jockeying for position, right? They want to see how close they can get to Jesus. And here's the thing, that crowd around Jesus were men. Were men. It was very important in this time that men, especially important men, teachers, um, of which Rabbi uh, Jesus was a rabbi, a, a teacher, um, um, religious leaders, that they were surrounded by men most of the time. Why? Because if they were to touch women um, during a certain time, that they might be made unclean. And they would perform these rituals in order to make themselves clean again. And, and it was important. It was just kind of like this, the way things were. And so the people who were around Jesus were men. And here this woman was, you read about in the Gospel of Mark, who has a hemorrhage. She's, she's bleeding. And, and that means that she has not experienced a time in her recent life where she was clean. Where she could experience human interaction in a way that didn't bring guilt on her, knowing that the person in which she was interacting with was going to have to perform this kind of laundry list of rituals to make themselves clean again. She hadn't experienced human touch that was guilt-free. And so she's pushed to the margins of society, just naturally. This is the way things are. Because you have this, you go here. And while she's there, she sees this crowd of people coming. She knows that Jesus is approaching. And she has this whisper in her mind, in the deepest part of her heart, that says, if I touch his clothes, I will be made clean. Now, common convention would tell her anything otherwise. Common convention would tell her, if I touch his clothes, I'm going to make him unclean, and he can't go do the things that he needs to do. I'm going to inconvenience him. But the Holy Spirit was speaking to her in that moment and says, if you touch his clothes, you will be made clean. And so she, she reaches out. She touches his clothes. 
She, she, she somehow manages to reach through the crowd and touch his clothes, and immediately she receives healing. It instantly happens. She can feel it happen in her body. But so can Jesus. And so Jesus, surprising to the woman, stops, turns around, and says, who touched me? The disciples in the rest of the passage say, Jesus, we've been jockeying around you for a while, right? Look, you have this crowd of people around you. How can you say, who touched me? And then Jesus said, no, somebody received healing. And the woman who thought that this would all be an anonymous act, right? Who, who thought, you know what, I can just do this and then Jesus will move on and I can get the healing that I need. But Jesus stopped. And when she confesses what she's done, Jesus looks at her in the eye and says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. And Jesus continues to Jairus' house where he heals Jairus' daughter as well. Now notice what happened. Jesus had a mission to do when he got off the boat. He had something to do. There was a task on his list of something to accomplish. And he gets interrupted by Jairus, right? Saying, hey, my daughter's going to die. Will you come here, heal her? And Jesus allowed himself to be interrupted by Jairus. And as Jesus is on the path that he was interrupted with, he is interrupted again by this woman and he stops. And brings her healing and then goes about the task of the first interruption, which was to heal Jairus' daughter. Why? Because he, Jesus was interruptible. If Jesus, like, right, like the important guy, like if you're a Christian, you know, like that's, that's pretty, like number one, okay? Let's, let's just kind of say that. If Jesus can be interrupted, like, like Jesus, we believe, was fully God and fully human. Jesus, like Jesus' tasks were very important to do. His to-do list was, was like written like in gold or something, right? Like, like Jesus' to-do list was very important. And Jesus allowed that list to be interrupted. If Jesus can be interrupted, what does that say about us? Are we living in such a way that we can be interrupted by the Holy Spirit guiding us to something. Friends, I want to remind you again, you can't love in a hurry. You can't. You cannot love in a hurry. So slow down. Slow down. Now, now, you may think, okay, th that's all fine and good, right? Like, like, you can just say, slow down and then move on, and I'm going to live at, like, breakneck speed of what I've been doing. Like, even as you've been, like, you know, preaching the sermon, that's a little bit too long. You know, I've been writing my list of things that I need to do um, immediately following this. Uh, just try this with me, okay? So how to slow down, all right? Try one of these three things. Try one of these three things this week. That's, that's all I ask, all right? Um, the first thing is this, create margin in your life. Don't book meetings back to back to back to back, right? Don't, don't go to the, the next thing immediately following this thing. It creates some margin in your life. Um, uh, John Maxwell says it this way, a popular writer, business leader. He says, say, uh, learn to say no to the good so you can say yes to the great. 
Learn to say no to the good so you can say yes to the great. Our schedules will fill up, will be maxed out by good things to do, right? Kids' sports are good things to do. Your work project is a good thing to do. That extra project that you picked up uh, to do over the weekend and the time that you would normally spend with your family is a good thing to do. That, that other thing that is maxing out your time is a good thing to do. What is the great thing you can do? What is the great thing you can do? Create some margin in your life. The second thing is this. The second thing is to eliminate time stealers. There are things in our life, there are things in our life that, that if we give them an inch, we'll take a mile, right? There are things that, that if we give them a second of our attention, we'll take multiple hours of our attention, right? There are things in our life that if we give them a fraction of our brain power, we'll take over our entire consciousness, they're called cell phones, right? Um, uh, uh, or, or, or maybe um, it's that like that twenty-minute, um, that twenty-minute episode of the long series on your streaming service. Do you ever realize that? Um, you know, like like how those series can just like continue. You ended twenty minutes, and and now like you know four twenty minutes later, you, you don't know where your time went. Eliminate time stealers, or if not even eliminate them, try this. The next time you want to escape to that thing, allow yourself to do it. But before you do, write down how much time you're going to spend doing that thing. Right? Take your, your pen and, and, and write down on a piece of paper or even on your hand, how much time are you going to devote to this? 30 minutes? An hour? What we find is that if we write down how much time we're going to give to this thing, that time will be more conservative than we actually would have spent had we just let the time go. Does this make sense? Eliminate time stealers or at least limit time stealers. Why? Because they're stealing the most valuable resource we have. And left to our own devices, the time will be gone and we'll be left in a hurry where we can't love. The third thing is this, and slowing down is be interruptible. Jesus was interruptible. Now, what I'm not telling you is to completely scrap your to-do list, completely scrap your agenda. But when somebody comes into your office, when your kids come in um, to your workplace, whenever, like, you know, something happens that stops your train of thought, the first reaction is to pray. And say, God, is, is this what you would have me do? Is this where you would have me be? Be interruptible. What if we lived this way, right? Like, like what if we, we lived this kind of life? What if our kids knew that we intentionally created our work schedule so that we could be accessible to them when they needed it? What if our spouse knew that we were carving out time for the two of us? What if your significant other knew that you were living in such a way so that you could have separate time with them that was, that was attentive, that, that was not you know, disengaged from the world, watching them, but was actually looking into their eyes, talking to them? What if your coworkers, what if your coworkers knew that you were intentionally picking projects that, that allowed you to be interrupted by them when they needed it so that they could come to you if they had a problem, they could come to you if they, they needed something, they could come to you when a crisis happens in their life, they knew that they could interrupt you what if our neighbors what if our neighbors knew that we lived in such a way that we created time we intentionally said no to things so that we could love them 
so that we could care for them, so that we could talk with them, that we could learn about their life? What if they knew we lived in such a way that we did these things? If we lived in such a way, they might actually know that we are Christian. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that you would bless us, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, God, that you would make us better than we are. God, in this time, as we look at what this next fall and spring and year are going to be, God, and, and there's anxiety as, as a virus continues to spread, there's anxiety as our, our, our leaders fight and squabble over the best practices, the best ways to, 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 to limit exposure, to continue economic growth. God, there's a lot of things that are going on in our life. And, and in the midst of this, God, you have placed people near us. Not just near in our hearts, but physically and literally near us. God, I, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit that, that what breaks your heart would break ours. That we would care for those neighbors that you have placed near us. That we would care for those families, those individuals who are seeking community, who are just hoping and praying that there is someone next to them that cares. That there is someone next to them that, that cares about what they're going through, that wants to know about their day. For no other reason, not because of how much they do, not because of how much they make, not because of what their children do or where they're from, for no other reason than because you created them. God, give us your spirit for that ministry. And we ask it and we pray it. In the name of the one who created us by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, who came and lived and taught us even how to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.